You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Reds, released December 25th, 1981. It was written by Warren Beatty and Trevor Griffiths, directed by Warren Beatty and released by Paramount Pictures. On vacation in Russia in the 1960s, Warren Beatty happened to encounter an ex-lover of John, nicknamed Jack, Reed's, and shared Reed's story. Beattie was fascinated by the story and mentioned it as a potential biopic as early as 1966. Instead, he connected with Trevor Griffiths to co-write the story, but split after several disagreements. After Griffiths, Beattie reached out to Chinatown scribe Robert Town and his Heaven Can Wait collaborator Elaine May for some polishes to the story. A first draft entitled Comrades came together around 1969, Around the same time, he was making an effort to learn Russian so he could hit on Russian ballerina Maya Plisetskaya. In the early 70s, before he had a full grasp on what the film would be, Beatty collected contemporary activists to interview on their recollections of Jack Reed and Louise Bryant on whom the film would focus. So, okay, dumb question because mm-hmm. I don't know anything about history. Is Jack Reed a known person? Yes. Because I've never heard of him before this movie. Well, you know, it's very early. This is pre-World War One, so. Well, I don't, I mean, I didn't learn any modern U.S. history whatsoever in any of my classes. But. I don't think we went over the Russian Revolution in my grade school history classes. Yeah. I feel we, like yeah, we, we focus on European stuff and yeah. American stuff, and I, that I was feel, it. I feel like the Bolshevik Revolution is a word, two words that I've heard put together yeah. before. It's like, okay, that was a thing that happened. <laughs> I, I remember that and maybe a number next to it. And yeah. that's as much as we had to remember the Bolshevik Revolution. But he's a known historical figure. Yes. Okay. Some of these interviews were actually filmed a decade before the film's release, and consequently some of the speakers had already passed away by the time it came out. Were, were these all filmed specifically for this film, though, or they were just gathered in general? These were shot for the film. Okay. I mean, way before the film came together, but by him mm-hmm. with the intent, with the of, intent of using in, it yes. in this film, in this way. Yeah. Okay. I mean, because... Maybe not in this way. Maybe it w- it could have been a documentary. He didn't well, know. He just of, wanted to get them on the record while they were still alive. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I was wondering in terms of how this happened, because I I think the, the format of the film is unusual. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not typical to have this sort of mix of documentary, documentary slash, alongside... Yeah historical reenactment type of movie. Yeah, no, it's definitely different. Because well, I was trying to do the math, and I was like, okay, if this movie starts in 1915, and I was like, and if these people were old enough to have advanced recollections, yeah, they must they have been- Yeah, they were adults at the time. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, so in 1980, they would have been- 65 years older than that? Yeah, I was just trying to like do crunch the numbers, but now it makes a little bit more yeah. sense knowing that it was recorded at least a little, a little earlier. Beatty himself was approached by famed Soviet director Sergei Bondarchuk after his 1965 epic War and Peace, considering Beatty to play Reed in his own biopic, Red Bells, but Beatty didn't care for the script, and the part of Reed in that was played by Franco Nero. 
<laughs> I don't care for your script about the same thing that I'm writing a script about. <laughs> well, it, you're not you're not doing it right. I'm going to keep doing my thing. Beatty had not intended at the time to play the lead and considered John Lithgow for his resemblance to Reed, but ultimately cast himself. The production title at the time was The John Reed and Louise Bryant Story, but it was referenced to in the British press as War and Peace on account of the film's <laughs> grand scale and Soviet focus. <laughs> Sequences planned for shooting in Leningrad were rejected for permits and production moved to Finland to play Russia. During production, Warren Beatty lost 30 pounds and a bout of laryngitis precluded him from doing the usual press tours upon its release. Obviously, a relatively pro-communist story made it difficult to entice studios, especially right at the start of the Reagan administration, but Beatty and Reagan were actually friends and a screening was organized for the president, who reportedly enjoyed the film, despite what he called a sad ending. I'm honestly shocked that this movie got made at all, considering I imagine it costs quite a bit of money to yeah, create very this expensive. film. And I just, I, I feel like a lot of people wouldn't want to be associated with it, considering how positively it portrays, you know, communism and socialism. I don't but know does if it, well, Yeah, I don't know okay. if it does. I, I think that's why they got away with it. But, okay, I don't think it portrays it negatively. I guess I will say that. I don't think it's specifically anti-communist or anti-socialism. I think that there's there's enough anti-socialist commentary in the film that they they felt like it tempered the 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 philosophy mm -hmm. of, of of the film. I mean, I feel like the fact that it was written in an era not too far off from um the HUAC the, proceedings and well, the McCarthy yeah. era and all of that. Like I, I'm just kind of shocked at how it anybody would would want to be associated with, especially this. with like the sort of second Cold War of the '80s with Reagan. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. It just, I, I, it just that that was the thing that stuck with me the entire time watching it. Is I'm like, who funded this? But really, there's only a couple scenes that deal with the actual tenets of socialism. It's true. The rest it's of it is a just story. a love triangle. Yeah, yeah. and there's sort of the backdrop of these historical things that happened, but they, they don't really go into the details of why socialism is important or why it's better than capitalism. There's not even a lot of anti-capitalism to the story. It's right. really infighting between socialists. Yeah, That's true. In, yeah, exactly. Like to me, it even shows, especially later on, how the communist ideals have been corrupted. Right. And uh, – He's working against it. Yeah, but like, I think, but I think that that in itself is actually a very positive portrayal because what they're saying is, okay, these guys are doing it wrong too, but our right. ideals are correct. And I think even just s making a statement like that would be hard for a lot of people to stomach at this yeah. time. But I think that the reason why Reagan could sit down and watch this as anti-communist as he famously is and still say. It's a decent film is because he watched it and he, and he didn't see a commercial for socialism. He didn't see something that was like, hey, look at this thing that you guys don't have. Doesn't it seem better than what we have? It just seemed like a bunch of people arguing mm. yeah. in banquet halls and that was it. And it was just like, yeah, it's really unappealing. Aren't you glad you have capitalism instead? Now go to the supermarket. Get whatever you want. Despite their eventual breakup on the screenplay, Beattie fought to include Griffiths as a co-writer for the film, and he agreed after a screening. It took home a pile of Oscar nominations, picture, director, screenplay, actor for Beatty, actress for Keaton, supporting for Nicholson, supporting for Stapleton, art direction, cinematography, costumes, editing, and sound. Beattie was only the third person 
to be simultaneously nominated for actor, director, and screenplay after Woody Allen in Annie Hall and Orson Welles in Citizen Kane. This was also the last film until Silver Linings Playbook to win nominations in all four acting categories. It won director and supporting actress for Maureen Stapleton and cinematographer for Vittorio Storaro. The film opens with more ragtime music, taking place around the same time as last week's ragtime. We start with documentary-style talking head interviews with people who were alive at the time to witness the era in which the film takes place. I was reminded immediately of the interview segments that bookend Chris Nolan's Interstellar mm -hmm. with real people describing their memories of America's 20th century Dust Bowl, but ascribing their words to a futuristic Dust Bowl of Nolan's imagining. The people are reflecting specifically on journalist slash activist Louise Bryant. Among their vaguer memories, they seem to recall Bryant as having been romantically linked with Jack Reed and that the two of them were popularly regarded as socialists. One woman goes a step further to suggest that Bryant was a famed exhibitionist, but we only get the tiniest inkling of that within the film. Another man amusingly refuses to share his opinion on the couple, but was still included in this segment. <laughs> it's like, what? Why are you here then? Go home. <laughs> what? I'm not going to answer your questions. I thought you were just offering me a chair and some <laughs> nice lights. <laughs> and, uh, and a license and an agreement to sign, though, here on <laughs> camera. That I would say anything that you asked me to. No, sir. I'm not... I'm not I'm not a, a, a purveyor of neighborhood gossip or anything of the kind. That's not my job. We finally get a glimpse of Jack Reed as some of the interviewers describe his famed adventures as an international reporter. Reed is played by Warren Beatty and is seen chasing closely behind a horse-drawn carriage racing through clouds of dust kicked up by artillery in the Mexican desert. Then, some more interesting trivia hints at the eventual conclusion of Reed's story. Didn't everybody can be buried in the Kremlin. And he's the only American. This is sort of true, as Reed was buried in a mass grave along the Kremlin Wall, but he's actually one of four Americans. Another such American was Paul Freeman, who was killed in the 1921 crash of the Aero Wagon, an experimental high-speed rail car mounted on an aircraft engine, which could reach speeds of up to 87 miles per hour. The other two were C.E. Ruthenberg, the founder of the U.S. Communist Party, and Bill Haywood, who appears later in this film portrayed by Dolph Sweet. We cut to a Portland art gallery in 1915, just three years after the close of our previous film. Louise Trulinger is leading guests around the exhibit and informing them of the prices of various framed photographs. Mr. Woodward, the man asking for prices, is not impressed with these blurry snapshots, but they assure him the pictures are blurry on purpose. I think that's the intention of the photographer, Mr. Woodward. What, to be blurry? Some women on the floor recognize a nearby sketch of a nude woman that was apparently drawn from Miss Trulinger herself. Louise! This is you? Her husband, Paul Trulinger, hadn't noticed the sketch until now and lectures his wife on her supposed unprofessionalism. She says she's leaving for a liberal club meeting. And we cut right there as M. Emmett Walsh is addressing the assembly as an unnamed character who's speaking there. But... Always fun to hear M. Emmett Walsh's voice. Yeah, you can. it's easy to identify. Yeah. He insists he's prepared to fight for his country if that's what the president asks. In the corner, Louise scribbles details on a scrap of paper. Everyone rises to applaud this comment except, noticeably, a man in the corner, Jack Reed. Reed is introduced and invited to the microphone with first-hand testimony from the war front. What would you say this war is about, Jack Reed? Profits. He sits back down, his speech over. 
A deafening silence overtakes the hall, and we cut forward in time to Louise meeting Reed in the lobby to shake his hand. She tries to convince him to agree to an interview, and he seems resistant. But we cut forward again to the two of them in an apartment where the interview will take place. This is her art studio, and Jack Reed is distracted by more nude renderings of Louise. With her first question, she appeals to Reed's pacifism by asking if the Warhawks are evil or dumb. Reed, who expressed earlier that he doesn't do interviews, appears uncorked by this approach. We cut forward big chunks of time as he rants nonstop over a dozen cups of coffee. He urges her to get down every word he says on paper. He says the financial incentive for the war has to do with French and English debts to America that Germany would wipe out by taking over said countries. Not even just American debt, but debt to J.P. Morgan specifically. America would be entering the war to protect J.P. Morgan's money. If he loses it, we'll have a depression. He goes on to preach the importance of sexual freedom for women, including birth control, which is probably a more controversial subject now than it was when this film came out. Reed takes some time to notice that Louise is no longer transcribing his lecture. In fact, she's not even holding paper. She's just staring at him. It's the next morning now. They've talked all night, or he has. She makes a vague offer, and he seems to misinterpret it as a sexual invite. Do you want to take it a step further? Yeah. What would you think if I asked you to do something that might seem a little selfish? Well, <laughs> I, I, I think you should. Good. Good, because I'd like you to take a look at my work and tell me what you think. You see, I really respect your opinion so much. Uh, like his return line, I was just going to ask if you had something I could look at. <laughs> <laughs> she hands him a big book of her writing to get his thoughts on her work. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone hand off a bound portfolio of their work to someone whose opinion they respected? Oh, crap. It just happened. Did it just happen? Yeah. Was it... Um... An American woman? What is that movie called? The not an American woman. Um Do you know the movie I'm talking about? The one where she's a painter and she lives and just, there's the other guy that He's a painter in this he, one. He's a not, it's not uh an unmarried woman. An unmarried woman. That's the movie I'm trying to think of. It wasn't that. Nope. <laughs> um, he's a painter. An old painter. And she's a little girl. Oh, oh. shit. Uh what's the name of that movie? Circle of Two. Oh, God. It's a terrible title. <laughs> he agrees right away to take a look at her writings, and she rushes him out the door. We cut to Jack Reed meeting with some locals trying to raise money for The Masses, a magazine that employs him. Suddenly, Louise enters the room, and the crowd introduces her to Jack as though they're strangers. I like the one guy's response to the name is like, is it a religious magazine? <laughs> yeah. It's like, is it The Masses? No, no, no. Not, not that kind of Masses. Jack is fascinated to find her here and amused to learn in this conversation that she is married to a local dentist. Over dinner, Jack asks if she and the dentist have children, and she says not yet with a loaded smile, suggesting that things aren't that serious. He realizes now why the interviews took place at her art studio and not her home. They take a short walk outside, and she invites him to undress before they start making out on the ground. Inside, we can hear the party guests singing yet another version of Onward Christian Soldiers for us to add to our list. We cut to the next morning in the same art studio, and she's on her way out in a rush again. She invites him to try some of the snacks stored here, and she won't let him get a word in edgewise, and asks that he return her portfolio to this address when he's done with it. He's leaving Portland for New York, and she seems upset by the news until he invites her. She wants to know in what capacity she would be joining him. What as? Huh? What as? What do you mean, what as? What as? Your girlfriend? What does that mean? What as? Your girlfriend, your mistress, your paramour, your concubine? If this were me, my answer would for sure have been, yeah, the last one, porcupine. 
But he, but he does suggest a different animal. <laughs> yeah, he lands on a pretty good joke, too. It's nearly Thanksgiving. Uh, why don't you come as a turkey? We get a few more confessional-style talking headpieces. A series of women are complimentary of Louise's writing, and another woman introduces a coat that she gifted Louise, even though it was her favorite. But finally, I gave in and gave it to her. I had other coats. We cut to Louise packing her things into a carriage to move across the country with Reed. Suddenly, the interviews are talking about lesbians and abortions, and it's unclear how they relate to the rest of the story other than the general treatment of women by American society of the time. Or now. This collection of interviews is punctuated by an old man suggesting that sex used to be about love, but it isn't anymore. <laughs> you know something that I think that there was just as much fucking going on then as now. Only now it has a more perverted quality. Now there's no love whatever included, you know. Then there was your heart, a bit of heart in it. Sex is perverted. Louise arrives at Reed's apartment in New York and he's not here. She sees her own telegraph posted on the wall announcing her arrival at Penn Station this afternoon. She sleeps in his bed until she hears Reed come into the apartment that evening with Edward Herman as Max Eastman and Maureen Stapleton as feminist activist Emma Goldman, who we mentioned last week was portrayed by Marie-Claire Costello in a scene shot and cut for time from Milos Forman's Ragtime. They argue about birth control and the magazine that Reed is working for, The Masses. Goldman leaves the apartment when she learns he doesn't have any coffee to drink. And after she goes, Reed finds Louise waiting in his bedroom. He says he read her work and offers her notes on a repetitive article on the railroads, but she says it was intentional. The political radicals of the time are quickly listed by another interview segment. We see more photographs of Emma Goldman and a shot of Max Eastman portrayed by Edward Herman again. Further down the list, we find Isadora Duncan, who we discussed extensively in our review of Arthur Penn's Four Friends. Mm -hmm. We see a shot of a bar room, and Jack Nicholson as playwright Eugene O'Neill is leaning back against a wall. We cut to Louise attending a montage of parties hosted by Jack, and people ask her what she does, but she never elaborates beyond identifying herself as a writer. Emma Goldman asks what she writes about, and Louise doesn't even seem to know. Everything. You write about everything? Everything, yes. Everything, nothing. <laughs> Answer. Answer their questions. These are influential people. You could be writing about them. Yeah. Goldman is not impressed with the answer, and perhaps not coincidentally, we cut to Louise dancing with Reed in a clown costume. In a bar somewhere, Jack talks to some customers about forming unions for their professions. Eugene O'Neill sneaks up behind him to join the conversation. At another table across the room, Max Eastman tries to strike up a conversation with Louise and mistakes her for a painter, even though all she ever tells these people is that she writes. We cut forward in time to a crowd of activists arguing in Jack's living room, and Louise is ready to kick them out. She makes some effort to join the conversation, but finds herself overpowered by the big thinkers in the room. I think voting is the opium of the masses in this country. Every four years, you're dead in the pain. Yeah, but... Don't you think... I just made it very clear what I think, Miss Bryant. Well, come on, E.G., don't be so goddamn dogmatic. Louise has a point. She says... Suddenly, I'm dogmatic. Eugene O'Neill tries to defend Louise, but Goldman shouts him down, too. We cut to a local restaurant where Jack and Louise are having breakfast. They're visited at their table by Horace Wiggum, who hassles Jack and his friends for their habit of getting arrested. When he learns Louise is a writer, he seems interested. But again, she fails to sell herself to the man. Well, now, may I ask, what are you working on? It's impossible to describe. It's impossible to describe? She just did a hell of a piece on the influence of the Armory Show, and you ought to read it. 
Horace invites her to drinks later, and after he's gone, Jack explains he's the editor of the Metropolitan and in a position to get her some real work. She insists to Jack that she can sell herself, but she's done a piss-poor job so far. Jack leaves on a trip and promises to see her at the end of the weekend, he says. The end of the weekend. We cut to Jack's mostly empty apartment where Louise reads her railroad piece out loud and realizes it's just as overly repetitive as Jack said. Sometime later, we see Jack Reed and fellow activist Bill Haywood talking to a crowd of workers in a barn about unionizing. They talk about the myth of unskilled labor and pass around pamphlets with all the information they need to demand what they are owed. At the climax of Haywood's speech, the police bust into the farm and order everyone to vacate the premises. Jack tries to remind the police of their constitutional right to peaceful assembly and is promptly beaten up and arrested. Excuse me, officer, these men have the legal right to assemble. That's all they're doing. We know what the hell they're doing. What the hell are you doing? Me? You. I write. You write? Uh-huh. Uh-uh. You wrong. We cut to Louise's date with Horace, and she hands over her portfolio at the table. The man immediately asks about Jack, and it seems clear that he's only speaking with her as a favor to her boyfriend. He spends all of five seconds reading the armory piece, and then puts it away to quote-unquote read later. We cut to Jack and his editor Pete, played by Gene Hackman, arguing over edits to the articles. Jack doesn't appreciate his words being changed for the publication. His editor urges him against writing what he calls red propaganda because of the hassle it makes for the paper. Jack takes the story and quits the job if Pete won't agree to publish his words as he turns them in. He returns home with flowers for Louise, and she's mad that he's so late in returning. Weirdly, though, she contradicts herself and what we've seen so far. She claims to be mad because he promised he'd be home Tuesday. He reminds her that he promised he'd come home at the end of the week, and she agrees, but says that the end of the week is Friday and it's Saturday now. So where did Tuesday come from? Yeah. <laughs> how, did you, how did you come up with Tuesday before? Also, he didn't say the end of the week. He said the end of the week end, which is actually Sunday. So he's home a day early and she's pretending he's four days late. Maybe it's like one of those like riddles, like a man rides into town on, on Thursday, but leaves on Sunday. And it and turns out that the, the horse's name was Sunday. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> Who's the horse here? <laughs> you know, she assumes he's cheating and slams the door to close herself in the bedroom. She's embarrassed to be jealous like a common wife. She's frustrated to be an accessory to greatness, and she needs to make a path for herself. She claims to have important things to say and accuses him of getting in the way, but he points out that all her articles are fluff, and his friends treat her as an unserious person because she isn't serious. She tells him she found an apartment and she's moving out. She slams the door hard, and he punches it behind her, clearly hurting his hand pretty bad, and he falls into the bed. After they've cooled down for a second, he asks if they can leave town together and write what they feel like somewhere. They smile and kiss. They move to a conservative community called Provincetown, Massachusetts, where they do experimental theater and collaborate with a lot of the same writer friends from New York, including Eugene O'Neill again. They star in their own plays, and according to more witness testimony, the plays aren't very good. <laughs> this movie took a turn here for me. It's like, it's like, wait, are they not reporters anymore? Yeah. <laughs> like, no, now we're they? actors. Now we're actors. But we're just doing it like in a, a fort in our bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> It's just like it's not on a stage or anything. You know, I, I get like writing and putting on plays for fun, but it's just like they're taking it so seriously. Like, weren't you guys gonna like write the Communist Manifesto and now yeah. you're in here making a blanket fort? O'Neill tries to direct them, but these are barely actors, and it's not working. Louise, in particular, is such a bad actress in these ramshackle productions that she seems to give Eugene O'Neill a migraine. We see behind the scenes of another play, and Jack Reed is for some reason dressed in a bear costume. Do you guys recall the last Jack Nicholson movie we saw with a full-grown man in a bear costume? <laughs> yeah, 
I'll you. give you a hint. Yeah. <laughs> he was blowing another guy. Oh, my God. Despite the silly costume, Jack has a serious political argument about the presidential options of Hughes and Wilson. Jack endorses Wilson due to his anti-war platform, but admits that both men will likely commit American troops to the war, but he thinks Wilson will drag his feet longer, which will save lives. Jack leaves town to spread his gospel and campaign for Wilson. Back in Provincetown, Louise finds herself alone with Eugene O'Neill in the beach house. Hello. Where's the whiskey? She fixes him a glass of whiskey and compliments his latest play, but he angrily lectures her on smoking during rehearsals because she's always looking for an ashtray instead of focusing on the performance. She seems caught off guard by the criticism, since until now, his stage direction has always been filtered through Jack. They sit together, drinking, and Eugene tries to smooth over some of his own hard edges with compliments. Don't let those village radicals keep you from being what you should be. What do you think I should be? The center of attention. Eugene prods a bit to learn about the boundaries of Jack and Louise's open relationship. She worries briefly that Eugene is too much of a romantic to be comfortable with the arrangement, but this leads into a montage of them on walks, swims, and dates together. We cut to another meeting of their sort of cult of artists, and Louise sings a song terribly, but still gets wild applause. Jack returns mid-party, and the room goes quiet, except for a radio broadcasting the 1911 ragtime love song, Oh You Beautiful Doll. Do you guys recall the last time we heard this little ditty? Yeah. When was it? Uh, the marbles. All, all the marbles. All the marbles. It was playing as the California dolls were carried to the ring for the final match of the film. The crowd asks Jack how things are going with Wilson, and he starts rambling, and we cut right to the party emptying hours later. Eugene, or Gene as Jack calls him, is the last to go, and it's clear he's caught feelings just as Louise feared. That night, she comes to Jack teary-eyed to admit something, and he seems to predict it and interrupts with a wedding proposal. Sometime later, we see Louise unpacking boxes in a new home, and she finds Eugene inside waiting for her. Where's the whiskey? He delivers to her a love poem, agreeing to the terms of the open relationship she described, but she breaks it to him here that she is now engaged, and the offer of free love is no longer on the table. Supposedly, the poem he gives her is an original work that Nicholson wrote specifically for Diane Keaton. Does this mean that we have to cheat, or is this a free and independent marriage? Is <laughs> this what led to that IMDb trivia that you thought was so stupid? <laughs> Which one was it? <laughs> it was rumored that they had an affair on set, and this was not true. <laughs> oh, no, I think that was for the for ragtime. Oh, yeah. okay, sorry. I got that confused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, like, it was rumored that these two had a relationship on set, but they did not. It's like, thanks, IMDb trivia. <laughs> a thing did not happen on the set. Gene suggests that she used him to get Jack to propose, but she assures him that it was nothing so premeditated as that. He leaves, and she continues to unpack, placing his note in a copy of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass on a shelf, the 1892 edition, the last published in Whitman's lifetime. He passed away two months later. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a character hold Whitman's Leaves of Grass? He was reading it out loud. To a snake! To a snake? To his pet snake, Harry. Oh, was it? It was. Oh my God. Strother Martin is reading it to Harry, the potential former human snake. Some interview subjects relay contemporary rumors that Jean, Jack, and Louise engaged in threesomes, and we cut to Christmas morning as Louise unwraps a puppy in a box. Oh, that's like. <laughs> how long has it been wrapped how, up? How long has it been wrapped up? I had this thing shipped from California. <laughs> I just picture. Uh, You'll see a gremlins when he shakes the box. You just hear Gizmo going. Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> it was like, because okay, so hold on. This is a little bit of a tangent. Sure. I don't know if you've ever 
you guys have had pets, so, you know, trying to put pets in a pet carrier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They tend to move around. And so carrying a box with an animal in it yeah. is like they slide around. Slide in one <laughs> corner, you're yeah. holding it all crooked. Yeah, exactly. It's just like he comes out with those boxes like, man, that dog is either like completely still or sedated <laughs> or something. Doggy downers. Yeah, it's it's never really implied by the events of the film that these characters had threesomes together. But these are just... I think they're sort of included in these edited segments so that you know that it's possible that that was happening between the scenes that we do see. But I don't get the impression that that is happening between these three. But it reminds me, having worked uh, many stints on a graveyard shift, that I used to listen to Loveline all the time. And uh, back before Dr. Drew went (laughs) full-blown crazy, I remember a common refrain from him was that uh, two things that, that work on paper, threesomes and communism, (laughs) <laughs> I feel like this movie is about that phrase in particular about how these things work on paper but in execution they're 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 not feasible. We see Emma Goldman shouting speeches to large gatherings in shadows. In 1917 there was a revolution in Russia that saw the dissolution of the empire and the installation of a socialist government. Wilson responded to the upheaval by declaring war on Germany to quote unquote protect democracy. We see people debating the decision in the streets, but anyone arguing against the war is quickly dragged away, and another interview subject insists that those people just didn't exist. We had no one against the war. There wasn't a soul against the war. There's there's souls against everywhere, probably. We cut to a local jail cell full of socialist activists, basically a forced meeting of the most outspoken of them. They try to call to Jack in the corner, who seems distracted by the toilet he's pissing in. The water is blood red, and another inmate notices. This one even pisses red. Do you remember the last time someone pissed red? (laughs) Robert can have punch. Robert, help make punch. What are you talking about? Robert pee red. (laughs) Student bodies. Oh. (laughs) The janitor made piss, and they thought it was a punch bowl. Anyway. We cut to Jack in a doctor's office where he's informed of a very severe kidney problem. Jack doesn't take the warning seriously and jokes that the government is paying him to say that so he won't travel to make speeches. Jack's mind is on other potential consequences of the illness. Could could this thing uh, interfere with uh, having children? Yes, you cannot have sex if you die. No, come on, Harry, seriously. This is actually (laughs) not true, but technically. (laughs) The human body can maintain an erection for several hours. What do they call that? I forget. There's a word for it. Uh. Stiffy. No, they, they, <laughs> that too. I forget what they call it in uh, in Clerks. It's like a nickname for a boner that you get when you die. Uh, I forget what it is now. We cut to a meeting of the Socialist Party of America and certain high-ranking members, in particular Paul Sorvino as Louis Freyna, are demanding action be taken by the party against the war. It doesn't sound like they plan to fight the declaration at all. And when Jack tries to speak against it, he's shouted down for not being a licensed delegate and therefore unwelcome to address the board directly. Freyna invites Jack to join the Communist Party officially because they can use men with his tenacity. At home, Louise is a little annoyed that they still haven't named the Christmas dog yet. Jack is distracted from the conversation by a note from Jean to Louise. It's the poem he handed her when he left for good. He tells her he didn't realize what it was until he had already read it, but he looks upset. He claims not to care that she had an affair, and even admits to a few of his own because they've been very clear about their open lifestyle. All he wants is total honesty on the matter. Louise is clearly disappointed to learn of his dalliances and packs to leave upon learning of them. He refuses to allow her to leave and carries her to the bed against her will. Ultimately, she leaves anyway, and he cries on the stairs when she's gone. 
Sometime later, we see Jack in a hospital, and a doctor presents him with the chunk of his kidney that was evidently just removed in the nick of time. Oh, man, it looks bad, too. Yeah. But also kind of delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Served it up just right. His Baba beans and then his Chianti. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. His doctor stresses the importance of avoiding salt and any further risk of infection, which could prove fatal. We hear several letters from Louise as narration, discussing her work as a journalist in New York. She says Wheeler gave her a job, but to please keep it secret. We cut to a busy diner where Gene Hackman as Pete Van Wary again argues with a group of men on the relevance or irrelevance of the Bolsheviks in the war. Jack sits down to join them and spouts his pacifist rhetoric when he learns from Pete that Wheeler fired Louise and she's been lying about her continued employment in her letters. For some reason, the scene called for 100 takes from Hackman and it only stopped there because he refused to go any further. When Beatty reached out to Hackman about appearing in Dick Tracy later, he was like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> Wait, so Beatty demanded... He More made takes. Hackman do a hundred takes mm. of this one scene of them just talking at a table that didn't matter. The interviewees list the statistics of those killed and wounded in the war because of America's involvement. We cut to Jack arriving to a small French farm and surprising Louise here. She's shocked by his appearance. You look fine. Are you all right now? Oh, God, yes. Nobody needs two kidneys. <laughs> second one's just for show. He's proud of her for following this story overseas and invites her now to come with him to Russia proper to follow the Bolshevik revolution, not as a girlfriend or a wife or even as a turkey, but as a colleague and fellow reporter. The war is audible from here, but Jack still urges her east. He even leaves a ticket behind for her to use in case she ever decides to follow. On the train to Petrograd, Jack is spotted by members of the Russian Communist Party who have heard and been impressed by his speeches. Jack takes a seat beside a like-minded gentleman and promises to buy him a new hat after the revolution. The man offers up his Russian fluency for Jack to practice the language during the ride. Just as the train is pulling away from the station, Louise walks up and sits down across from Jack with a list of demands. Now here's the thing. I'd be a goddamn fool not to take you up on this offer, so here's what I want. I want to sign my own name to my own stories, and I don't want to use a double byline. I want to be responsible for my own time and my own actions. I want to be referred to as Miss Bryant and not Mrs. Reed, and I want to keep an account of every cent we spend so that I can pay you back. Now, I assume you know that I'm not going to sleep with you, so just don't confuse the issue by bringing it up. That's it. Fine. Good. You like salami? Jack is quick to agree to her terms. She, Jack, and their Russian friend share many jokes along the ride. I kept waiting for this guy to turn on them since his introduction seems so ominous, but he's very sincere, and he stays this way. They pull into a station deep in the war zone where men are being operated on literally feet from the windows of the train in plain view of everyone, like they're trying to make a big scene of it. Yeah. They lean out the window to interview the young soldiers, and their new Russian friend translates. He says the Bolsheviks are growing in power and intend to stop the war themselves by spreading and refusing to fight. They're met right off the train by a man named Alex Gromberg, who has an empty apartment for them to move right into. He tells them that the current Kerensky government is due for overthrowing any day now by the Bolshevik army. Louise is annoyed to find a single bed in the apartment, but Jack quickly agrees to sleep on the couch, and 12 hours later he has kept his word. Sometime later, Jack is looking over an article Louise is prepared to turn in and offering some constructive criticism. In striking contrast with her established response, she is quick to take the advice to heart and admits that his notes do, in fact, improve the article. We get a long montage of them working on articles together, giving each other notes, and observing firsthand the central figures of the movement, like Lenin. I am the walrus. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. The I, Lenin. Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. Zinoviev and Trotsky. Lenin is not the expert public speaker of the team, 
but he is the central architect of the intended post-revolutionary government. We learn from their articles that the Russian armed forces are collapsing and 14% of their soldiers have deserted this year alone. As they discuss the inevitability of the revolution Jack predicted when they left Europe, Louise's face changes and she stops him mid-rant to thank him for dragging her here to cover this. She realizes this is what they were meant to do and they're doing it together as equals. Thanks for bringing me here. We cut to a nearby crowded warehouse just as an order to strike is being voted on by the crowd. One man on stage urges against the strike, but he doesn't seem popular, and the crowd seems to firmly back the strike. Jack assures the man translating for him that Americans would support the strike, and the man asks Jack to deliver that message to the crowd. He's dragged on stage to repeat himself. I, I only want to say that if you strike, the American workers will not feel betrayed. The crowd bursts into applause to learn that their socialist brothers in America will support them in this action. I think he's overselling it here yeah probably yeah. <laughs> they're definitely the minority at home yeah i i can surely speak for all american workers everyone screams and waves their hats in celebration even bursting into song and louise and jack smile at each other across the room to not only be here reporting on world history but to be playing a significant part in it as well that night pamphlets blanket the city announcing the official strike declaration and we cut right to louise and jack having sex the next morning Protesters flood the city streets and bring public transportation to a halt, eventually driving the strike order nationwide. In an auditorium, Lenin takes a podium and announces something to the room, which draws more riotous applause. Jack's Russian translator friend throws his hat in the air, where it catches on a chandelier, signifying that the revolution has finally come to pass and he is owed a hat. Yeah, uh, like it was like a perfect frisbee golf because of of the the chains of the chandelier. Yeah. like it's just like a frisbee golf net. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> it exactly. Just kind of like gets tangled up. I, in I want to know how many takes this took because if it took a hundred takes just to get them talking at a desk, how many did this one? To take? get this one shot, <laughs> they got this one right on the first try. Yeah, Gene Hackman threw the hat just in case. But they had six more chandeliers prepared so they could cut down each one <laughs> in case the hat caught in an awkward angle. <laughs> We fade to intermission on a silhouette of Louise and Jack embracing in their apartment that night. <laughs> According to Warren Beatty in a 2006 interview, this was the final Hollywood production with an intermission. But <laughs> I think you read that there was one the next year in Gandhi. Yeah. <laughs> and there's yeah. like a bunch that I could come up with off the top of my head. Yeah. I think uh, Gods and Generals had one. And too. Hateful Eight definitely had yeah. one, but that was after 2006. Um, there's also one in Hamlet, apparently, in 96. Did 2001 have one? Yeah. Yeah. Because oh, I, I couldn't remember because I was going to do, do you remember the last time we had an intermission? But yeah, yeah, I couldn't remember if it had one. Or it didn't. I don't remember. It did. Okay. <laughs> or it didn't. I know it had. An overture. The overture at the beginning. Am I crazy? Maybe it didn't now. Now I'm questioning everything I know. Well, <laughs> now, I think it did, but I couldn't remember. And that's why I was hoping that. It either did you... or didn't, though. Definitely. <laughs> it's 50-50. I'm, I'm going binary on this one. We got a brief intermission and open back up in New York, 1918. As Jack is going through customs, his collection of documents and newspapers are confiscated by the American government with a special wartime permission. Max Eastman is here to pick them up and assures Jack that he will get his papers back and he can still write the great novel on the Russian Revolution. Louise and Jack return to their abandoned home after a couple years away. We see them spending time with their dog, Dog. <laughs> they decorate a Christmas tree all under the rambling performance of one of the interview subjects who's just mumbling random songs from the time that he can think yeah. of. Just whatever words float into his head. Yankee Doodle went to London just to ride the ponies. I am the Yankee Doodle boy. How's the big head? <laughs> Great. <laughs> just keep rolling. This is, this is gold. gold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted his song to end with, I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> 
Can you just slate your name for us? <laughs> we cut to a public hearing where Louise Bryant is being asked her religious beliefs under oath. Do you believe in our Lord Jesus Christ? I believe in the teachings of Christ. Am I being tried for witchcraft? A senator leading the questions paints the Bolshevik forces with a broad atheist and evil brush, and the crowd is aghast at this characterization. Does one have to be God-fearing and Christian to be decent? She points out how silly it is to villainize a movement that promised to end the war peaceably and achieved that goal six months into power. She points out to the men questioning her that President Wilson made the same promise and instead declared war within the same six-month time frame, resulting directly in the deaths of 115,000 American soldiers who were promised no war. That's how decent, God-fearing Christians behave. Give me atheists any time. She also points out that women's suffrage has been a proven success in Russia and was still somehow unattainable at home. I'm sure in their heads they were like, well, yeah, that, that's another mistake that they made. Of course. Of course we haven't done that. According to the interviewees, the resistance to a workers' revolution here was, at heart, a fear of overzealous unions making unreasonable demands of their employers. American propaganda had turned the public almost unanimously against pacifism and socialism of any kind. We cut to a jail cell where Jack is delivering a care package to his friend Emma Goldman, who is being deported to Russia. The revolution needs you. We're going to get you back. Comrade, I'm not leaving the revolution. In Russia, I'll be joining it. Because she was actually born in Russia and immigrated mm. to America. Louise comes home one night to Jack cooking dinner and barricading the kitchen door because he's accidentally started a small fire. <laughs> The flaming dish is spilled about the room and another pot boils over. The final gag here is when he lifts the third pot off the burner and we see the bottom has separated from the rest of it and the <laughs> contents are left to blacken on the stovetop in a smoldering pile. When he finally presents the meal, it's just the tiny scrap of salvageable food and Louise pretends like it's good, so Jack is relieved. He sits down to write his most celebrated work, Ten Days That Shook the World, sharing firsthand the story of the Bolshevik Revolution. At another meeting of the American Socialist Party, Louis Freyna announces that the right-wing membership have been expelled to make room for the people who intend to follow Russia's example by taking action. In the recent internal elections, he and Jack Reed have been elected to major positions in the party. They have only just been announced as the victors when Louise is suddenly learning from Jerry Hardin in the lobby, as someone named Harry, that the left-wing candidates have all been ejected from the party and their election wins are being tossed out. The left-wing has split into two factions. Freyna wants to start a new Bolshevism party, and Jack wants to reclaim the existing Socialist Party. We get a quick, relatively useless scene at the apartment where men are gathered with Jack to discuss their next moves, and a man named Eddie comes in to admit he was late for a meeting with a man named Levine, who we will never see in the film. None of this comes back. We're still working on things. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the point of the scene is to show how... They're operating a miniature party out of his apartment. <laughs> well, that and how Reed is so obsessed with the movement that doesn't care that this guy's had to take his wife to the hospital. Right, yeah. Jack is furious with Eddie for missing the meeting that they themselves arranged, and Louise tells Jack to cut his people some slack. Jack and his men crash the next socialist meeting, despite having been turned away at the door. The right-wing leader of the party, Julius Gerber, played by Mr. Feeney himself, William Daniels, is furious to find the meeting intruded upon by the rightfully elected executives of the party. Jack steals away Gerber's megaphone and announces to the crowd that the real Socialist Party will be meeting downstairs in five minutes and the executives who gaveled this meeting are imposters. The police are called in to drag away members from the party's left wing. Jack dumps the megaphone over Gerber's head and marches out of the hall and down the stairs to lead interested members to the new meeting. 
Jack begins another speech about how to help the party grow, and Louis wanders in to basically remind Jack that he was first to suggest forming a new party, and the American Communist Party will be holding a meeting in the Russian Federation building. Jack has his chairman call for a vote to establish the Communist Labor Party. So now, what was once the Socialist Party has split into three parts, the right-wing socialists, the Communist Party, and the Communist Labor Party. It's easy to see why splintering the group is a mistake. Jack is nominated to lead the party and ordered to Russia as a delegate of this new group. Louise is first upset about all the infighting, but by the end, mostly angry that Jack will be abandoning her to go back to Russia in pursuit of this goal. She doesn't want to go and just be an accessory for him again. Louise is doubly annoyed that he has splintered from Freyna, from whom he has no policy differences with his newly formed Communist Labor Party. Jack says Freyna isn't a competent leader, but Louise accuses him of being racist and obsessed with the spotlight. Her speech doesn't change his mind. I'll be back by Christmas. By now, relations had so soured that Jack has to be smuggled into Russia. Louise goes to see a cartoon in a theater, but leaves distracted in the middle of it. She turns to walk up the aisle right through the middle of the projector beam. The crowd are surprisingly patient with her, though, except for one man who follows her out intending to murder her for ruining the cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> or more likely because he's a government stooge <laughs> ordered to follow her around. Wherever he was, Eugene O'Neill's Louise Bryant senses are tingling, and suddenly she finds him to pick up where they left off while Jack leaves to Russia. She claims to believe in Jack's cause, but Jean points out that she's here in America for some reason. He tells her that he liked her better in her free love phase, and she explains to him just what Jack provides her. Jack is taking real action, making a difference in the world. It must seem so contemptible to a man like you who has the courage to sit on his ass and observe human inadequacy from the inside of a bottle. Jean seems amused to have touched a nerve, and Louise leaves. That night, in the apartment, calling for someone named Jesse and getting no response, I'm, I'm guessing this is what she named the, the dog, dog yeah. when he left. Suddenly, an agent of the attorney general's office kicks in the door looking to arrest Jack, but he's not here. They settle for as many of Jack's private documents as they can scrape together. After being smuggled by ship to Asia, Jack was forced to march several days through Tundra and then bribe his way into a major city in Russia. He tries out his Russian in conversations with Grigory Zinoviev, chairman of the Communist International, the global arm of the Soviet Communist Party, Zinoviev recommends he simply speak English, in which he is fluent, but he has an ulterior motive for this we will learn later. At the climax of the meeting, Zinoviev orders the merging of the Communist and Communist Labor Parties before either can be officially recognized. Jack is obviously disappointed and further confused to learn that he has no ride home, but instead will be put to use in the Soviet propaganda machine on account of his influential way with words. They treat him like a traitor to the cause for wanting to go home. They basically tell him to find his own way if he won't go along with their orders to assist in the transformation of their country. But it's not really a fair comparison because they're like, I have kids, I have a family too. And it's like, yeah. yeah, and you go home and see them every night. Minor in America. You're not listening to me. Jack makes an effort to escape on his own, but complications from his kidney situation make the trip through miles and miles of snow almost impossible. At the border of Finland, he's stopped by a squad of soldiers who put him in a Finnish prison. Well, yeah, at least it was finished. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, an unfinished prison would be my preference. <laughs> just climb right it's, out of it's it. It's just open. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't finish this wall yet, did you? <laughs> Fuckers. Have you seen Support Your Local Sheriff? I you? haven't. Is there stuff like that, breaking out of prisons? Yeah, uh, he, arrests, he arrests Bruce Dern and puts him in the jail cell, but the jail's not done. There's no bars. <laughs> and so he just draws a line. Just don't cross don't, that don't line. Don't go over this. <laughs> That's great. 
Back in the U.S., Louise goes to the State Department and asks for assistance in collecting her husband from Russia and finds no sympathy here. He has only one kidney. He could be dangerously ill. That is a chance that your husband took Mrs. Reed when he left the United States without an exit visa or a passport. Good day, Mrs. Reed. In spite of their falling out, Louise goes to Jean in search of a connection that could smuggle her to Norway, and she'll figure out the rest of the way on her own. He offers to go in her place to draw less attention. She pleads with her eyes to let her handle it herself, and he gives in. We cut to the Finnish officials intercepting all Reed's mail, and we see a telegram from Louise that says, Trying all solutions. Hold on. The message is wrinkled instead of delivered. We see Louise hiding out in the lower decks of a ship, tossing and turning in a storm. The doctors at the jail holding Jack give him a checkup and diagnose him with scurvy. The doctor reveals himself to be sympathetic to the communists and agrees to pass along a note to Louise for him. Sometime later, Louise and a guide are trudging through deep snow for miles. Out of seemingly nowhere, Reed is released from jail and we learn an alleged explanation from one of the interview subjects. But what I heard was the Bolsheviki traded some Finnish professors for the release of John Reed. We cut to Petrograd 1920 and Reed is met at a train station by members of his party. Right away he orders another message sent to Louise and we see each stage of the message's delivery by Morse code in secret and behind enemy lines. Of course, Louise is not getting these messages because she's already struggling desperately to reach him. Reed's new living quarters are shared with the earlier deported Emma Goldman. The lack of response from Louise is rattling him. He asks Emma if she gets mail here, but she says the Americans filter everything important out of it. He asks if she's gotten any word of Louise, and she recalls a mention from others who have lost track of her. She evidently left New York after Christmas when Reed hadn't returned. Emma can read on Jack's face that he suspects she's headed this way, so she sits him down to communicate the monumental unlikelihood of that happening. Not only would it be a risky trip for anyone to make, Emma has made no effort to mask her disdain for Louise during their every encounter. In her estimation, Louise in particular is not up to the task. All for the sake of a revolution she was never any part of. Why should she? You chose the life of a revolutionary. She didn't. Emma suggests the lack of a response is a response in and of itself. Jack returns to the apartment they lived in when they documented the Bolshevik uprising and is reminded of their time, but disappointed not to find her here waiting for him. Louise's guide takes her to the doors of the Finnish prison where he was being held when she left America, but she has no idea where he would have gone from here. Jack makes an effort to attend and contribute to the many congregations of the party, but he's given up on learning Russian in favor of relying on the provided translators. Fortunately for him, other bilingual attendants inform him that his translators are changing some of his words, which we learned with Gene Hackman earlier is Jack Reed's biggest pet peeve. He even tries adjusting the official languages of the meetings, set to English, so that his words cannot be twisted, and Zinoviev is loudest among the dissenters, not wanting to waste his time on this. At another meeting, Louis notices that Jack seems weakened after a prolonged chat and stops to check on him, but they're quickly back to work. When Jack's resolution about language is voted down, he resigns his position and walks out of the building. Emma Goldman is disappointed with the rule of the Bolsheviks, and Reed blames counter-revolutionaries sabotaging factories and foreign aid blockades, not to mention the predictable difficulties that come with the transition to a complete new style of government. It hasn't been given the chance to work. Emma has given up on the entire socialist theory, and in the middle of berating her for giving up on it, he realizes he has to unresign his position to the committee and get back to work as a part of the solution. Yeah, this, this was a big turning point for me as, as far as the, whether this movie was pro or, or anti-communism, because basically Emma says, it doesn't work. 
Yeah. Like this, this, this system doesn't work. In execution, people are starving to death. Millions of people are starving to death every year and you can't provide for them the way you've set the government up. But maybe he has a point. Maybe if you set it on this course for long enough that it worked and there weren't insurgents fucking it up on purpose from within that it could work. But those people will always be there. Yeah. Because capitalism is more profitable for some people. Jack is immediately sent by train to Baku in Azerbaijan to begin the next chapter of the transformation of world government. They're welcomed as liberators, and Jack is disturbed to find a sort of Uncle Sam pinata being hung and burned in effigy at the station. Sometime later, we see Emma trying to collect supplies to live off of from the local food lines and being rejected. As she's leaving the room, she hears an American woman's voice and looks as though she's seen a ghost when she finds the source of it. (laughs) She's shocked by Louise's commitment to read and realizes for the first time that she has underestimated this woman. How in the name of God did you get into Russia? She brings Louise back to her shared place with Jack and informs her that he was sent with a contingent to the Middle East, but is set to return, soon hopefully. We cut there as Jack addresses a massive crowd, and during a break in his speech, the audience are suddenly cheering voraciously, and Jack doesn't understand why, until a man nearby tells Jack how his words have been mangled by his translators. What's that for? They are supporting you for your call for a holy war of Islamic people against the Western infidels. On the train back to Russia, Jack learns from his German-to-Russian translator that she received all the English-to-Russian translations directly from Zinoviev, so the confusion must have started there, and Jack is obviously pissed because he has already railed on the issue of his words being changed, and he understands now why Zinoviev advised him against learning Russian in the first place. He confronts Zinoviev in person, and the man doesn't even pretend to deny it. He assures Jack that the changes were necessary to change the minds and win people over to their side. But Jack doesn't appreciate being manipulated this way. When you separate a man from what he loves the most, what you do is purge what's unique in him. And when you purge what's unique in him, you purge dissent. And when you purge dissent, you kill the revolution. Revolution is dissent. You don't rewrite what I write. No. The argument is obliterated by an attack on the train. An explosion behind Jack sends flames and splinters showering over his shoulders. Counter-revolutionaries are firing on the train from a nearby bridge, and all the men kick their way out of the windows of the train and crawl on their hands and knees away from the gunfire. Jack spots reinforcements on the horizon to suppress the attack, but more artillery fire send two horses tumbling end over end, which, as we have repeatedly stressed on the show, is impossible to do safely, and both animals were badly injured in the shot. How in the world would someone who owns horses care so little about them to allow them to be used this way? Like... There have to be horse handlers on set that are like, "What? why did you do that to the mm. horses? There, I, there are terrible people in the world that, I guess. you know, raise animals for various purposes. I don't, but it's just I'm like, not you treated it so it. nicely up until this one day where you just wrecked it on set on purpose. It just seems insane to me. I mean, I think you're making a leap to assume that it had been treated nicely up until this point. I mean, they're, they're pretty at least. So pretty. Jack spots a passing horseman dragging a carriage behind him and races on foot behind it to get a handle on the quickly departing trailer. The shot very closely resembles the first shot we saw of the man, racing behind revolutionaries of the past in Mexico, and the cinematic implication seems to be that this is the last shot we will see of Reed. Bookended, facing this historic event on his feet with death at his heels. We cut to the train station in Petrograd, and Louise is horrified to find the train arriving so badly damaged from the attack. The windows are all shattered, 
but the other people at the station applaud as the men emerge from the train. Louise's eyes are locked on the door, but eventually a last man steps through and closes it behind him, and Jack is nowhere to be seen. We see a body unloaded on a stretcher with a blanket over it, and as she watches it pass by, she looks up to see a man she somehow missed coming off the train. It's Jack, dirty and disheveled, with a gruff beard, and she wanders sobbing to him and they hug each other tight. He begs her not to leave as if she would come all this way to break it off. <laughs> Look, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> Bye. She takes him to a hospital because he's clearly in rough shape, but the doctors are not as well funded here to take care of him as they would be at home. She never leaves his bedside. He talks a bit in his sleep, basted in a feverish sweat. His words make no sense to her as she worries they might never again. One night, he's surprised to find her here in Russia as if he imagined her the first time. He asks if she would at all be interested in a trip to New York with him. I wouldn't mind. What else? What else? What else? Gee, I don't know. Comrades? Comrades. Which I mentioned before was the original title, and I think it works much better. Yeah. Um, also because I feel like Reds is more commonly used as a derogatory term for mm-hmm. communists, where I feel like Comrades is like sort of a satirical insult for like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, Comrade. Like you would say it like it's it's more of a lighthearted uh, nickname. I think it's just more memorable in general. Yeah. Sometime later, Louise leaves Jack's room at night to refill his water and accidentally knocks a cup to the floor. When a boy retrieves it and hands it to her, she stares at his face a moment and is suddenly certain of something. She returns to Jack's room and finds a crowd of doctors just outside. They give her morose looks as she is instantly broken in the hall. She moves inside to confirm her fears and finds that Jack has passed away. And although Warren Beatty here is 44 years old on set, Reed passed away at the age of 32. She lays down beside him in bed and cries as we cut to black for the credits. That's Reds. Whew. It's long. It's long. It's it's heavy. And it's so much mostly a love story. And I feel like there's actually not enough interesting things happening. I I feel like when he's delivering speeches, I don't quite know enough about what's going on or the context of what's going on. And what he's saying is always so vague. Yes. It's never never the specifics of, of the legislation they're trying to get across. Even when he's having the argument about just changing the language of the meetings, mm-hmm. it's like, why are we not talking about communism right now? Yeah. And how communism is going to work. But even even when he's talking about communism, it's like, we just, we must unite. The the workers yeah. must unite. It's like, yeah, I get, I get that, that. That's what- Right, they, right, right. But what else? Yeah, we need, we need the rest of the fucking owl. So when Warren Beatty heard the story, was it just the fact that this guy- broke into russia uh i I think he he liked the idea of an american having such a hands-on approach to a socialist revolution and i think there probably are interesting aspects to this story but then it focuses so much on the relationship that it's it's really not the movie is not about communism the movie is about a man and a woman who have a passion for politics and for each other and about how they balance that out yeah i guess i just don't feel the drive like what drove him to make this movie i don't I, I, know i i think that jack reed was 
considered a hero in some circles and that's all you need for a lead actor to be interested it's like oh hero worship and the one american in the whole country that that fixed everything he went there and he fixed everything and it's like he didn't really do that that didn't happen unfortunately but at the time people treated him like he was saving the country with them or for them almost it's like a messiah complex but yeah um but it was well made yeah absolutely yeah. Uh, and the I, performances are great yeah uh, I actually think Beatty's performance is the weakest of the, of the mm. four nominated. But yeah, I, I, I like the story. I just don't think that there's enough here to really warrant a movie, let alone, I mean, if you're going to make a movie about the Russian Revolution, it has to be three hours and 15 minutes long. You can't do that in 90 minutes. Mm. Be like, there, I made a historical movie. Yeah, but there, but there was nothing in here that needed to be this long. No, I agree. And there's a lot of scenes that feel arbitrary and unnecessary. Because I feel like you make those really long dramatic epics for historical movies because there's a lot of information to get across about yeah. all the events that happened. And I don't feel like that's necessary here because it's not about that. Yeah. You could have cut a half hour out of this movie getting rid of the Eugene character. Yeah, like definitely. We don't need to have them for a half hour to 40 minutes of this movie putting on plays. Yeah. But he's the most famous out of all of them. And, and yeah. even if you try to make it like a love triangle, it's like, it's not enough of a love triangle because we saw them go on a couple of walk dates mm-hmm. and then the second time they meet up, they don't even like each other anymore. So it's like, it's not even a love triangle because she was never really in a relationship with Jean. And if she was, it happens off screen. Like we never see them in bed together. It's just like they're walking and talking while Jack is out of town. It it didn't, you're right. It didn't need to, it didn't need to be included. I still give it a thumbs up. Oh, for sure. But yeah, um, I'm but, not going to give it a thumbs down, but do I ever need to see it again? Yeah. No. I, I don't think it was robbed for best picture. No. Um, what are we thinking, uh, Letterboxd? I'm worried I'm being too generous. I'm worried I'm being too exactly perfectly right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just too perfect. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. You go. All right. Uh, I have it at 48, which puts it uh, below... Whose life is it anyway? Uh, above chariots of fire, Jessica. I have it at forty-seven. <laughs> I have a below Windwalker and above Cabo Blanco. Well, you're both being too mean. I have it at fifty-seven. It's just <laughs> under pennies from heaven and just above on the right track. Mm-hmm. So we're I, all we're all in yeah. there. I had it significantly lower. I had it in the seventies, but I like I I don't know how much. Mostly my list generally goes like how often I'd want to see something or in what order I'd want to right. see it in. But if I do that, it goes really far down on the list. But it's not a bad movie. It's not poorly made. I just don't I think that I just a don't movie, need this kind of movie. I think to be great, a movie has to do both. You can't yeah. just be well made. So so like this is the order of the movies that I have on my list. It's Reds, Chariots of Fire, and Gallipoli. Yeah. Like they're yeah. all right one yeah. after the other. And I was like, yeah. All the historical epics. All these historical epics that I just felt kind of like, eh, about. Great. Good job, guys. <laughs> you did a thing. <laughs> I feel like none of them, like we haven't gotten to it yet, but Gandhi next year has like a real emotional core to it that you feel the entire time you're watching the movie. And all three of those movies are kind of like, okay. This happened. Like, what am I supposed to connect with? What is yeah. what is the emotional center of this? And it's I don't know what it is in Reds, unless I care especially about these two people getting back together, which I don't like. They seem friendly. They don't seem to hate each other the whole time, but they don't seem so passionately in love that I'm like really worried that she's not going to get back in time. 
Writer-director star Warren Beatty played John Reed, Jack Reed. Before this, he was in Splendor in the Grass, Kaleidoscope, Bonnie and Clyde, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and Shampoo, which he wrote, and Heaven Can Wait, which he wrote and co-directed with Buck Henry. After this, he took a break till Ishtar, and later Dick Tracy and Bullworth. He's also the husband of Annette Benning and the brother of Shirley MacLaine, who we've seen so far in not one, but two Fox comedies about troubled married couples breaking into dueling affairs. The character he plays in the film was, of course, a real historical figure, and his novel on the Russian Revolution, entitled Ten Days That Shook the World, was adapted about a decade later by Soviet writer-director and montage pioneer Sergei Eisenstein for his film October, aka October, Ten Days That Shook the World, one of his best-known works besides Strike and the oft-parodied Battleship Potemkin, which climaxes on the Odessa steps with a freshly orphaned baby rolling down the stairs in a baby carriage. Reed also wrote the novel Insurgent Mexico, which was adapted into the Mexican film Reed, Mexico Insurgente. In 14 competitive Oscar nominations, his only win was for directing this film. He was also granted the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award in 2000. The co-writer here was Trevor Griffiths. Not much else I recognized, but he wrote a couple miniseries overseas like Adam Smith and Bill Brand. The music here came from Stephen Sondheim, who wrote the lyrics for West Side Story and Gypsy, and later the music and lyrics for Sweeney Todd and Into the Woods. After this, he comes back with original music for Dick Tracy. The cinematographer here was Vittorio Storaro, who previously lit Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Last Tango in Paris, 1900, Apocalypse Now, and One from the Heart. He later lights Lady Hawk, Ishtar, The Last Emperor, Dick Tracy, Bullworth, the 2000 Dune miniseries, and Paul Schrader slash Rennie Harlan's Exorcist prequels. The editor here was Dee Dee Allen, who previously cut The Hustler, Bonnie and Clyde, Little Big Man, Slaughterhouse-Five, Serpico, and Dog Day Afternoon. So far on the show, she has cut Night Moves and The Wiz, and she's back for Breakfast Club, Henry and June, and The Addams Family. And Henry's in this movie, of Henry and June fame. Editor Craig McKay previously cut Melvin and Howard, and later Silence of the Lambs, Philadelphia, K-Pax, The Manchurian Candidate remake, and Europa Report. Diane Keaton played Louise Bryant, her first major film role was as Kay Adams, the fiancé of Pacino's Michael Corleone in The Godfather. She followed that with several Woody Allen titles, most famously taking the Oscar for playing the titular character of Annie Hall, a character based on and named after her since, at birth, her name was actually Diane Annie Hall. She also appears in Manhattan before this, and after this, Baby Boom, Father of the Bride, First Wives Club, as she reunited with Nicholson for Something's Gotta Give. She's probably best known for her 2021 appearance in the music video for Justin Bieber's song Ghost, wherein <laughs> she plays Bieber's grandmother. She and Beatty began production in an actual romantic relationship, which had faded before they were done. Edward Herman played Max Eastman. His first credit was in last month's Patreon winner, The Paper Chase. He also shows up in Day of the Dolphin, The Great Gatsby, and so far this season, he was Harry in Harry's War. Next season, he's FDR in Annie and later he's Henry in Purple Rose of Cairo, Brown in The Man with One Red Shoe, Max in The Lost Boys, and he's Richie Rich's dad in that movie. He's also Richard Gilmore in 154 episodes of The Gilmore Girls. Yeah. And he also appeared alongside Red's co-stars, Paul Sorvino and George Plimpton in Oliver Stone's Nixon. Jerzy Kaczynski played Grigory Zinoviev. He's best known for having written the novel and script for Being There. The actor playing Zinoviev wrote Being There. He initially turned down the role, fearing he might be kidnapped from the Finland set by the KGB after smuggling himself out from behind the Iron Curtain decades earlier. 
Shortly after this film's release, he was accused of having stolen the plots of his best-known works from existing untranslated Polish novels. When he couldn't shake accusations of plagiarism, he committed suicide in 1991. Jack Nicholson played Eugene O'Neill. Apparently Sam Shepard and James Taylor were both considered for this part. But, uh... Wow, former President James Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) Nicholson had also previously co-starred with Warren Beatty in The Fortune in 1975. Nicholson got his start with a bunch of Corman stuff, and then he exploded after Easy Rider into titles we've discussed like Five Easy Pieces, The Shining, The Postman Always Rings Twice. He shows up in Carnal Knowledge, Tommy, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Going South, which he directed himself. After this, he's in Terms of Endearment, which is of Eastwick, Batman, A Few Good Men, Mars Attacks, As Good As It Gets, About Schmidt, and The Departed. He has 12 nominations for Best Actor, and he won for Cuckoo's Nest, Terms of Endearment, and As Good As It Gets. O'Neill's daughter, Una, lost touch with him after marrying Charlie Chaplin and wrote Nicholson a note after seeing the film saying, thank you for letting me love my father again. Aww. So that's nice. Nicholson was weeks away from starting on Ragtime and it seemed like Warren Beatty stole him away from the production despite Milos Foreman having directed Nicholson's probably best performance in Cuckoo's Nest because he said he couldn't see any other actor in Hollywood that could believably woo Diane Keaton away from him. <laughs> Coincidentally, Nicholson and Beattie supposedly have around 12 girlfriends in common. Ex-girlfriends. Paul Sorvino played Louis Freyna. Before this, he was in Where's Papa, Day of the Dolphin, and Oh God. We've seen him so far in Cruising, and he's back later in The Stuff, Dick Tracy, Goodfellas, The Rocketeer, and Bullworth. He also appears with Red's co-stars Gene Hackman and Jerry Hardin in The Firm. Maureen Stapleton played Emma Goldman. She was in On the Right Track and The Fan earlier this season, and she won an Oscar for her performance in this film. But my favorite role from her will always be Ma Kelly from Johnny Dangerously. She also appears in Lonely Hearts for a nomination, Airport for a nomination, Interiors for a nomination, Money Pit, Cocoon, and Bye Bye Birdie. Nicholas Coster played Paul Trulinger, that's the first husband of Louise Trulinger slash Bryant slash Reed. We just had him as Avery in The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper. He's Lionel Lockridge in 599 episodes of Santa Barbara and Mayor Jack Madison in 63 episodes of The Bay. We saw him last season as Tatum O'Neill's father, Mr. Whitney, in Little Darlings. M. Emmett Walsh was a speaker at the Liberal Club. This is our sixth episode for M. Emmett Walsh after Cold Turkey in the 70s and Brubaker, Raise the Titanic, Ordinary People, and Backroads. He's also in Serpico, Mikey and Nikki, The Jerk, Blade Runner, Blood Simple, Fletch, Critters, and more recently he's appeared in Calvary, Adventure Time, and Knives Out. Ian Wolfe played Mr. Partlow. He has credits dating back to the 30s. He's Dr. Minton in Rebel Without a Cause, PTO and THX 1138, and we saw him previously on the show as the farting commandant in Up the Academy. He also appears as a forger in Dick Tracy. Bessie Love played Mrs. Partlow. She has credits dating back to the mid-1910s. She's Hank Mahoney in Broadway Melody, 1929. We also saw her last week as Old Lady in Ragtime, and later she's Lily Bell in The Hunger. McIntyre Dixon played Carl Walters. We've seen him so far in Altman titles Health and Popeye as Cole Oil, Olive's father. And, right, Cole was the father, or was he the brother? No, he's the father. Yep. And more recently, as a nature walk teacher in Paternity, the one who tells the kids what surrogacy is. Later, he's in The Secret to My Success, Batteries Not Included, and The Dream Team. Pat Starr played Helen Walters. She's Mrs. Spectre in Outland, a scientist in Superman 3, Lily Hammond in Judge Dredd, and a CIA agent in the first Mission Impossible film. Max Wright played Floyd Dell. He's Alf Dad. We saw him last year as one of the scientists from Simon. 
I want to go on the rocket. Yeah, as soon as I heard him in this movie, I was like, <laughs> oh, hey, I know that voice. Yeah. He's also Joshua Penn in All That Jazz the year before. One of his last credits was as Norm MacDonald's boss on the sitcom Norm. George Plimpton played Horace Wiggum. He's actually best known for his sports journalism, but he has played several small parts over the years, occasionally playing himself. Harry Ditson played Maurice Becker. He's Harold Clevish in Improper Channels earlier this season. Just last week, he was a county clerk in Ragtime. We've also seen him as a convict in Superman 2, and he's Duquois, a member of Another Revolution, in Zucker Abram Zucker classic Top Secret. Catherine Grody played Crystal Eastman. We saw her last season as the teacher Miss Jump in My Bodyguard, and more recently as Mrs. Boyle in Whose Life Is It Anyway? Brenda Curran played Marjorie Jones. She was Nancy Clutter in In Cold Blood, and she's back next week as a parent in our season finale, Taps. She's also Pooh in The World According to Garp, Francine the Landlady in Chud, and more recently she was Old Lady in Happy Death Day to You. Norman Chancer played Barney. He was Slater in Outland. Dolph Sweet played Big Bill Haywood. He was Sheriff in Finian's Rainbow and Missile Commander in Colossus the Forbin Project. We've also seen him as a police sergeant in the original Out of Towners. Raymond Bieri played Police Chief. He was Major Mancheck in The Andromeda Strain, Cato in Badlands, and Corlette in Sorcerer. Jack O'Leary played Pinkerton Guard. We've seen him so far as Big William in a minisode review of On the Nickel and in Brubaker and Inside Moves last season. Gene Hackman was Pete Van Wery. He was Popeye Doyle in The French Connection, Lex Luthor in Some Supermans. He's Royal Tannenbaum. We saw him last opposite Barbara Streisand in All Night Long. I think my favorite performance from him is as Herod in The Quick and the Dead. In five nominations, he has won two Oscars for French Connection and Unforgiven. IMDb Trivia says, Gene Hackman did this role for nothing, which I prefer to read as it was a waste of his time. (laughs) (laughs) And not that he waived his fee. Apparently, he did it as a favor to repay Warren Beatty for getting him cast as Clyde's older brother Buck in Bonnie and Clyde. William Daniels played Julius Gerber. He had previously appeared with Beatty in The Parallax View, and he was also in All Night Long with Hackman. He's Mr. Feeney on Boy Meets World and Girl Meets World. We saw him first as Albert Einstein in The Blue Lagoon. He's the voice of Kit on Knight Rider, but my favorite performance from him is as Albert in A Thousand Clowns. Stefan Griff played Alex Gromberg. He was a KGB agent in a later Warren Beatty-Elaine May collaboration, Ishtar. Roger Sloman played V.I. Lennon. He is the secretary of the Monster Club earlier this season. (laughs) Oleg Karinsky played A. Karinsky, and he's also credited on IMDb as one of the witnesses. He's not one of the witnesses. That's his dad. Oleg Karinsky, who played A. Karinsky, and A. Karinsky was his grandfather. But Oleg Jr., was a famous dance critic and the actual grandson of Alexander Kerensky, which I just added to the IMDb trivia page because it wasn't there somehow. Hmm. But his father of the same name was one of the witnesses being interviewed for the interstitial segments as the the son of Alexander Kerensky. That was his, his specialty, why he was invited. Shane Rimmer played McAlpine. He was Captain Ace Owen in Dr. Strangelove, a radar operator in You Only Live Twice, Tom in Diamonds Are Forever, Hamilton in Live and Let Die, Rusty in Rollerball, and Commander Carter in The Spy Who Loved Me. We've also seen him in Superman 2 and The Dogs of War. After this, he was a Gotham City waterboard technician in Batman Begins, a board member in Tim Burton's Dark Shadows, and his last credit was voicing Louis Watterson in six episodes of The Amazing World of Gumball. He's Gumball's elderly step-grandfather. It's like a little old mouse with a cane. (laughs) Jerry Harden played Harry. We saw him last as the governor in Honky Tonk Freeway. 
Later, he's Snuffy in the unrelated Honky Tonk Man next season. He also shows up in Cujo, Falcon and the Snowman, and Starman, but for my money, he's either Deep Throat from X-Files or the attorney at the start of Big Trouble in Little China that's trying to get Eggshan to squeal on Jack Burton. If you're protecting Jack Burton... You leave Jack Burton alone! Jack Kehoe played Eddie. We've seen him now in On the Nickel and Melvin and Howard. Later, he's Jerry Geisler in Midnight Run and small parts in Dick Tracy, Falling Down, and The Game. Christopher Malcolm played CLP party member. He was Kirk Matunis in Highlander. He's the dad in Labyrinth. He's Rebel Force Zev Rogue 2 in Empire. And after Empire, we've seen him so far in Superman 2, Dogs of War, Shock Treatment, and just five seconds ago in Ragtime last week. Tony Sibold played CLP party member. Again, Superman 2. He was the president's unconvincing body double. And again last week in Ragtime. R.G. Armstrong played government agent. We've seen him now as the judge in Where the Buffalo Roam. He was Rigby, the jerk boss in Raggedy Man, and Dempsey in Pursuit of D.B. Cooper. Later, he's General Phillips in Predator. I love the look of his face, and it makes perfect sense that Beatty brought him back in 1990 to play Pruneface in Dick Tracy. Joseph Sommer played State Department official. We've just had him back-to-back in Rollover and Absence of Malice a few episodes back. Busy December for this guy's family going to the movies every weekend to see him. He got his start as Rothko in Dirty Harry. After this, he plays parts in Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days, the first Sam Jackson shaft, a senator in Some of All Fears, and D.A. Radford in The Other Guys. Amusingly, he's also a named character in a 1993 film called Malice. So you could do a Joseph Sommer double feature of Malice and Absence of Malice. (laughs) Jan Triska. But you just show Absence of Malice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Perfect. (laughs) Wait, where's the... Oh, I get it. Jan Triska played Carl Raddick. A lot of Russian stuff before this. He's another Ragtime co-star. After this, he's Alexander Kovalev in 2010, The Year We Make Contact. Roger Baldwin played a witness. He's the co-founder of the ACLU in 1920 and the executive director of that organization into the 50s. He passed away several months before the film's release. Henry Miller was another witness. He's the squintier old guy with the gravelly voice. He's a celebrated author whose works have been adapted into a number of films, most famously Tropic of Cancer, in which he appears as a spectator and is portrayed by actor Rip Torn. He's also the titular Henry of Philip Kaufman's Henry and June, where he's played by Fred Remo Williams Ward. Andrew McCarthy from Weekend at Bernie's played Miller in Claude Chabral's 1990 film Quiet Days in Clichy, and Mike Figgis's re-adaptation of the same work has him played by Scott Glenn. He was deceased more than a year before this film's release. Adela Rogers St. John played another witness. She was the daughter of famous defense attorney Earl Rogers. Adela was a reporter for Hearst newspapers and magazines starting in her teen years. She transitioned to books and teaching in the late 40s. In her 80s, she returned to reporting to cover the trial of her former boss's granddaughter, Patricia Hearst. Dora Russell was another witness. She is an early contraception and peace activist. Later in her life, she campaigned extensively for nuclear disarmament, along with her husband, renowned British logician, mathematician, and Nobel Prize winner Bertrand Russell. Scott Nearing played another witness. He's another pacifism activist who was active in anti-military protests from the start of World War I all the way through Vietnam. Tess Davis was another witness. She was a cousin of Louise's first husband. Heaton Vorse was another witness. He was the son of a Provincetown playwright. Hamilton Fish III was another witness. I love that name. He was a congressman for New York's 26th district from 1920 to 1945 and a classmate of John Jack Reed's. His son, Fish IV, was also a representative from 1969 to 1995. Fish V 
was less successful in politics, but his film Hotel Terminus won the 1989 Oscar for Best Feature Doc. Fish fam. <laughs> Isaac Don Levine played Witness. He was deceased before the film. He is a Russian-born anti-communist writer who really stands out in the interview <laughs> because he's the one who's taking pride in organizing the deportations of various activists. <laughs> he was just like, uh, yep, I got them kicked out. And I said, yep. kick them all out of my country. Rebecca West played another witness. She's a reporter who covered the Nuremberg trials for The New Yorker and the author of various celebrated books I'm not smart enough to recognize. Will Durant is another witness, deceased before the film. He's a historian. Will Weinstone was a witness. He's the executive secretary of the Communist Party of America from 1921 all the way to 1922, the next year, and an architect of Detroit's auto worker unionizations of the 30s. Arn Swabek was another witness. He was a Communist Labor Party member. Adele Gutman Nathan was a witness. She's one of the Provincetown players just dancing around in the blanket fort. George Selds played another witness. He was an American journalist in Moscow. Kenneth Chamberlain was a witness. He was a cartoonist for The Masses, Jack Reed's early magazine. Blanche Hayes Fagan was a witness. She's another Provincetown player. Galena Von Meck was another witness. She was a witness of the Bolshevik Revolution with Jack and Louise. Andrew Dasberg was a witness. He's a painter and a pioneer of American Cubism, whose work was presented at that armory show that Louise was so keen to write about at the start of the film. Dasberg was over two years deceased at the time of the film's release. Hugo Gellert was a witness. He was another artist for The Masses magazine. Dorothy Frukes was a witness. She was a military officer, a lawyer, a suffragist, and she ran for Congress twice in the 1920s. Good for her. George Jessel played witness. He's a man from the future. Oh, no, sorry. I'm mixing up my notes. George Jessel. Not, not <laughs> George Jetson. Get it? He was the actor who originated the role of the jazz singer for a stage production before the Jolson film. He appears in a cameo as himself in 1967's Valley of the Dolls. In the early 60s, he dragged Shirley Temple into his office and groped her while removing his pants, so she kicked him in the dick and left. <laughs> Fuck this guy. Yeah. <laughs> Lucita Williams was a witness. She's also dead. She was a <laughs> All these people are dead, by the way. Uh, she was a screenwriter of over 50 silent films and a lifelong friend of Mary Pickford's. Jessica Smith was a witness. She was an editor and suffragist who despite passing away in 1983, somehow managed to appear as a teenager in a 1995 episode of Married with Children, unless there's <laughs> another person named Jessica Smith. But what are the chances? Arthur Mayer is another witness. He was also deceased by the time the film came out. He was a film producer, no relation to the Mayer Mayers. He also distributed Vittorio De Sica's 1948 film Bicycle Thieves, which was the winner of an honorary Best Foreign Language Oscar before the permanent category existed. Mario Gallo played a worker, uncredited. He was Mario in Raging Bull. Simon Jones played Louise Bryant's colleague in France. He was Arthur Dent in the original Hitchhiker's Guide miniseries. Yeah. That was the guy who was in the farm that was like, Louise, where are you going? And she was like, I think I'm going to get on the train with this guy. Richard Leparmentier played Man Drinking with Pete Van Wery, uncredited. He was General Modi in A New Hope and Lieutenant Santino in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Maria Margolis played Woman Writing in Notebook. She's Pomona Sprout in Harry Potter, Aunt Sponge in James and the Giant Peach, and we've seen her so far in The Awakening and The Apple. John Ratzenberger played Communist Leader, uncredited. I didn't see him in here. Yeah, but it's, it's funny because, again, ragtime right. as well. Like, yeah, I mean, he, he kind of hung out in the UK that whole year and just appeared in every major film But because uh, he was in Superman 2. He was in Outland. We saw him last season in Empire and Motel Hell. 
and of course he's Cliff Clavin and a bunch of Pixar characters. Manning Redwood was also in Outland. Uh, he played a U.S. Customs uh, uncredited. He was Lowell for Outland. He was a forest ranger in The Shining because his name's Manning Redwood. He was Harry Weiss in Shock Treatment so far on the show. So that's the father of uh, Janet Weiss, right? In uh, Shock Treatment. He's the one who sings the song about being a man. Mm, yeah. Uh, Peter Ross Murray played a communist soldier uncredited. He was Dr. Phobius Farb in Little Shop of Horrors, 1960. He also has screenwriting credits on the 77 Dr. Moreau, Going South, and so far on the show, Last Married Couple in America. He wrote the script for that. But I'm guessing he was a friend of uh, Nicholson's, basically. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Little Shop of Horrors and Going South. Um, those are all the credits I have for this one, amazingly. Only 125 people. <laughs> I think that's everything for Reds. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintage video pod. What's that sound? We got one! That's right. It's a new patron, David Clausen. As a $5 patron of the show, David now has access to 46 full-size 70s reviews and a hand in choosing next month's film. For December of 1973, our $5 patrons are choosing between the following 12 titles. The Day of the Dolphin. Mike Nichols' sci-fi thriller about a team of dolphin trainers whose animals are kidnapped for use in an assassination attempt on the American president. It stars George C. Scott, Trish Vandeveer, and Paul Sorvino from this. The Exorcist, William Friedkin's recently sequelized horror classic about a young girl possessed by a demon and the priests enlisted to perform a Catholic exorcism. It stars Ellen Burstyn, Max von Sydow, Sydow, something, Jason Miller, and Linda Blair. Fantastic Planet, Rene Leloup's animated sci-fi film about humans being observed as animals by an enormous humanoid species on a foreign planet. Lady Snowblood, Toshia Fujita's adaptation of Kazuo Koiki's manga series about a woman seeking violent revenge for the rape and murder of her mother and brother respectively. It stars Miko Kaji, Toshio Kurosawa, Masaki Daiman, and Miyoko Akaza. The Last Detail. Hal Ashby's comedy drama about a pair of sailors sent to collect a young recruit and deliver him to a court-martial and eight years in the brig, but decide to make the most of the man's multi-day trip. It stars Jack Nicholson, Otis Young, Randy Quaid, Clifton James, and Carol Kane. Magnum Force. Ted Post's Dirty Harry sequel from a script by John Milius and Michael Cimino, documenting the further antics of SFPD's favorite loose cannon, this time being out loose cannoned by a team of younger vigilante cops with an even more blatant disregard for the rule of law. It stars Clint Eastwood, Hal Holbrook, Mitchell Ryan, and Robert Urich. Papillon, Franklin J. Schaffner's historical prison drama based on a screenplay by Dalton Trumbo and Lorenzo Semple Jr. about wrongly convicted prisoners Henri Cherrier and Louis Dega and their attempt to escape from a French Guiana prison. It stars Steve McQueen, Dustin Hoffman, Victor Jory, and Anthony Zerby. Serpico, Sidney Lumet's biopic on NYPD officer Frank Serpico and his efforts to snuff out corruption within the department. It stars Al Pacino, John Randolph, Jack Kehoe from this, and M. Emmett Walsh from this. The Seven Ups, Philip D'Antoni's action thriller from the same cinematic universe as The French Connection, following Roy Scheider as basically the same character, based on the experiences of the same cop, Sonny Grosso, who consulted on both films. It stars Scheider, Tony Lobianco, Bill Hickman, and Larry Haynes. Sleeper, Woody Allen's sci-fi comedy about a man from the 70s cryogenically frozen and thawed out in 2173 to find a dystopian police state. It stars Woody Allen, Diane Keaton, Don Kiefer, and Douglas Rain as the voice of the future computer. The Sting, George Roy Hill's period crime caper about a couple of con men who team up to pull off the ultimate con. 
It stars Paul Newman, Robert Redford, Robert Shaw, Charles Durning, Ray Walston, and Eileen Brennan. And finally, The Wicker Man. Robin Hardy's British folk horror film about a policeman sent to the Scottish island of Summer Isle to investigate the disappearance of a missing girl and his clashes with the town's cultish and uncooperative inhabitants. It stars Edward Woodward, Britt Eklund, Ingrid Pitt, and Christopher Lee, each of which celebrate their 50th anniversaries in the month of December. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing our season finale, TAPS, which IMDb describes like so. Military cadets take extreme measures to ensure the future of their academy when its existence is threatened by local condo developers. We leave you now with the trailer for TAPS. informed that Bunker Hill Academy is to be closed. An end to nearly a century and a half of tradition and an end to the heart of us. Sir, how can they do this? With the stroke of a pen, sir. Their field of honor was a desktop. The lady said the proprietors ordered the school closed. Now, as I see it, we are the proprietors. You tell us where you put those weapons or this will be the sorriest day of your life. All right, we have three demands. They're very reasonable. When they're met, we'll be happy to return every weapon, every shell. You say we. Who else? Number one. I want a meeting with General Mitch. Now your you back. stay where back. you are, Sheriff. Everyone in here is here because they want to be here. My son would not be involved in something like this. Lady, if my son can be involved in it, your son can be involved in it. My men. Our tanks, our helicopters, we will take this campus. So anybody who isn't 100% sure of what we're doing, take one step forward. Attention! What? Major Mullen, he's our man. Major Mullen, he's our man. They don't scare us, do they, Charlie? No, sir. Me neither, sir. They don't scare me. What in God's name did they teach you in here? You and I have nothing more to talk about.